Everyone eats out every day, but people don't think about how food arrives on the plate. This is Grounded, and I'm Lauren Mitchell. Join me as we delve deep into the challenges, expertise, and experiences of professionals and innovators in the food service industry. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators. Today's guest is a dynamic, energetic, and results-driven executive with over 23 years of experience in supply chain and growth development. Before joining his current company, he was the vice president of supply chain at Noodles and & Company and on the border Mexican Grill in Cantina, where he achieved significant cost savings, operational efficiency, and performance improvements. He has proven leadership experience in all procurement and distribution aspects, with domestic and international experience, which is my favorite part, managing over 2,100 global locations. He's currently the Chief Supply Chain Officer at Fat Brands. Jeff Burris, welcome to the show. Hi, Lauren. How are you today? Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, you're a great personality in the industry, well-known, and um, I'm just excited to hear kind of about your path into the business and, and how your experience has been shaped and form, forms much of the way that you're making decisions today. I mean, that's, that's essentially what this is all about. So why don't we get started with kind of the, the foundation question, which is what got you into the f- food service industry? Where, where did you get started? I, I honestly wouldn't know any other industry. I've, I've only worked in restaurants in my career. I started busing tables years and years ago at the age of 16 and worked my way through operations early in my career to um, just really get an appreciation for what restaurants are and their purpose, right? It's a place where people come together to sort of nourish and replenish not only their, their bodies, but their minds and the time. And they use it for different time, different uses. Just It's just something that I've always enjoyed. Um, I, I have been very lucky to work with some great leaders in my career that help me reinforce that restaurant industry is the right place for me. I love that answer. Just starting the career in the back of the house, um, in the restaurant space and servicing customers right there at the table. Do you remember the name of the first restaurant you worked in? <laughs> um, it was a little small Mexican restaurant in Shreveport called um, Dust Phoenix. Uh-huh. And it doesn't exist anymore. It was, uh, gosh, this was I don't even want to go into how many years ago it was, but it was a great little concept. And it was about three blocks from my house. And I started when I was 15 before I had a car. So it was easy to walk to. Uh, uh, Yeah, long time ago. That's so awesome. I just had my kids with me in California and we drove by Ruby's Diner um, where there's red and white candy striped uniforms with aprons. And I had uh, to to buy a pair of white sneakers. And I told them this is where I worked. Well, the, the kids' meals came in this little old school car with the French fries and the hot dog. But I told them, man, that was probably one of my hardest working jobs. I remember getting home just wanting to get off my feet. It is tough, tough, tough work. So that's awesome. Okay, but how did you get into, um, I guess, on the border first to start? Um, what were some of the work that you did there and maybe just some of the key learnings based on your experience? Well, I'd spent a lot of years in the sports bar industry before coming to On the Border. Um, I'd worked for a brand called Fox and Hound that had several owners, private equity groups over the years. We'd acquired a brand called Champs. Uh, but I, I was very fortunate to get into uh, Fox and Hound when it was young. I think we had like 25 locations. 
and they were in a growth cycle. So I started uh, working my way through operations and eventually got a job as director of training. And as the brand grew, we uh, grew into new markets. So it switched that role into a food and beverage uh, lead position, which naturally you ended up dealing with distributors. And I started to fall in love with the puzzle that is distribution. And as you learn to move project uh, products around the country really efficiently uh, and, and more, more so effectively to reduce lead times and cost. So um, that led me a long career with, um, with Fox and Hound. I left a couple times to work with brand, other brands, uh, Bar Louie being one, but um, spent a lot of time there and made the transition on the border. Uh, about 10 years ago almost, uh, and really, really enjoyed that. It was a legacy brand. It's sort of ironic. My brother actually bartended on the border where I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, <laughs> and I think he was more excited about me getting the job than I was <laughs> because he met his wife there and things like that. But it was such a great brand, especially with the history it had with Brinker. It was a rich menu. It was highly respected in terms of the food quality. Really enjoyed that. But um uh, after my time there, I'd gotten recruited to come to Noodles and Company, and was just fascinated with the people approach and the culture that Noodles presented. It really is a people-first organization, and they spend a lot of time developing and focusing on um, POP, if you will, and I've always called it that. I don't know if it's standard, but people, operations, profit, in that order, right? People first, operations next, execution, and then making sure that we don't forget why we're here, which is the profit piece of the business. And Noodles allowed me to really explore um, different avenues by which to approach supply chain. One of the things that we were really um, fortunate to do there is be able to drive cost out without changing a single supplier in my first year. We drove a lot of cost out just by attacking the operational efficiency and execution by which uh, or how we uh, approach the supply chain there and had a lot of support with leaders there in the organization. Um, Ken Kuick, who is uh, the CEO at Fat, co-CEO at Fat Brands now. Uh, was actually who hired me at um, Noodles and Company and uh, just a, a really great mentor to me along with others in my career. Driving costs down without changing suppliers. Can you share a tactic that you've used? Uh, don't have to use the brand in specific, but just give us an example of, of what's something that you've done. I mean, that's, that's I've heard that a few times, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Well, it's about partnering with your internal leaders. Uh, for instance, there's a couple different avenues. One, obviously, real easy logistics, making sure that you're moving product efficiently, you're paying attention to freight brackets, times, turns, cases, velocity. The other is working with leaders within your organization, uh, like marketing and operations, for instance, to determine uh, where the guest finds value within the product itself. And then right. taking those equations back to the manufacturer and talking about, do we really need X, Y, and Z as a component being as we don't market it, it doesn't affect the end product per se. Are we paying unnecessarily for an ingredient that doesn't really contribute to the guest value equation? So there were a couple of different ways that we looked through the system. Um, the other piece was uh, not all things are going to drive out cost of the product. Sometimes you have to introduce cost of the product to offset operational costs on e-labor. So we looked at ways of executing our, our products without having to actually you know, cut, chop, dice, whatever. Uh, might be the option in the back of the house. So the product came in ready to use with still the same quality that we would expect if we had made it ourselves. It wasn't necessarily to try to diminish um, what we were doing in the restaurant as much as to make it easier on the operator to execute. Wow. And that covers one of the questions I was going to ask, which is leaning into the trends to drive decisions within the brand. So um, you talked a little bit about that. 
how is it, I mean, is it done through surveying? How do you really get deep into the guest insights? Is it done through the operations team within each restaurant space and really ensuring that the dialogue is, is first of all being had, but then also recorded and then and returned back to, to marketing and supply chain? Or what are some of the things that you guys do in order to understand the true pulse of what the customers are valuing at the brand? Of eating it. Well, I, like I said, I lean into the operators and marketing more so. They're closer to the guests than I am, per se. Um, left unchecked supply chain leaders can become a bit uh, chaotic, if you will. Sometimes, you know, we, we've we been pigeonholed a little bit of thinking only as, in terms of monetary um, uh, as a qualitative uh, aspect uh, in, in value equation. So uh, consumer insight, testing, eat, Something as simple as a word cloud, looking through your feedback for guests who ordered a particular sauce and, and noticing where they place value or where the frequency of mention is. I don't want to speak too much because each brand has their own metrics by which, for instance, um, you take Roundtable who makes their dough uh, from scratch, right, uh, in the restaurant each day. That is a value proposition to those guests. It, it could be um, something completely different for fazoles like breadsticks. Um, it's, it's funny cause we were looking at breadsticks for always, and you'd be amazed how important it is that they have the right crisp of butter across the top and the bottom and the seasoning over it. So each brand's a little different. Um, not trying to avoid your question, but it really is staying informed and having effective communication with the stakeholders within your organization to make sure that you've addressed, um, all their concerns when looking through the product to find those efficiencies. So would you say that what consumers value about the flavor of an ingredient or the specific ingredient changes by the brand? It kind of depends on how you position the brand. Um, you know, I've worked with brands that don't have freezers. I've worked with brands that do have freezers. Uh, it, it really is, is where the brand has positioned itself to the consumer. If you talk about fat burger, for instance, it's premium fresh burgers, right? You, you would not go in and introduce um, a frozen patty there because you would downgrade the quality. It may even be that the patty is so good frozen, you can't tell the difference, but still it's a claim. It's a claim mm -hmm. that the consumers use to you to choose you over your competition. Um, you look at brands like Wendy's out there that still tout the claim, but regardless, each brand is different and each guest is different based on where your category of concept fit. Mm -hmm. All right. So using your experience with any of those previous brands, so let's keep fat brands aside for the moment. Um, limited time offerings. This can be a challenging one, especially those are focused in the fresh produce category because we're trying to swing limited shelf life, obviously, and, you know, national sourcing, um, you know, brands that spill across multiple states. How do you go about or what are some of the best practices you've seen working with a brand in terms of choosing what time of year, what items, and also how many, which has definitely changed since COVID? So we, as you alluded to, each brand is a little different. Some lean into LTOs heavily because that may be how they market to the consumer or, or remind the consumer about the brand. Others uh, do it just from an innovation pipeline to keep the menu fresh, you know, cycle one on, cycle one off. As far as cadence and timing, it really depends on the type of concept. For instance, uh, you take some of our burger brands, I'm not going to throw 27 different burger LTOs out there. You take noodles, for instance, you're going to throw three to four menu events out there, at least historically is when I was there, how we approach those from a quarterly standpoint. But it is really um, unique to each brand. With noodles, I found, uh, and working with the culinary team there, um, is that it was to sort of give the guest a runway to experience different flavors from around the world 
sort of reduce the veto vote, if you will. Noodles has such a, a vast menu of different offerings, whether it be Asian or Mediterranean or things like that. So that's how it was used there. With Fat Burger, it's really highlighting the quality of our core product, which is burgers um, and shakes for that matter. One of the initiatives this year is going to be focusing around shakes. Obviously, it drives check, which is what we all need today is as that consumer is looking to find um, where they choose to spend their money um, to, to really create a value for them and that they're getting their money's worth. Yeah, that's so interesting to see how even just the word variety can be different in terms of a variety of complete menu items or also just variety within a core menu item and how you can kind of switch up some of the flavor profiles just within one basic item. Uh, so fascinating. How about looking back to when you started your career um, to current day, what do you believe to be the greatest improvement in just supply chain alone? Oh, uh, technology, uh, insights into data, um, whether... Mm-hmm. You have whatever you want to use, whether it's the different back office inventory systems or the supply chain systems for monitoring inventory, it's so night and day. I live in, live in my data, um, looking at POs, inbound POs, run rates, performances, um, trying to keep up with having just the right amount of inventory is even more crucial here at FAP uh, because of our franchise. I don't have... We're, you're so heavily franchised. I don't have a core base of restaurants to sort of burn a product out if we get the forecasting wrong or we um, have too much product. We have to work collaboratively there. So it's really taught me that the data is more important now than it is ever. And uh, when I say I'm in the data every day, I'm like every minute we live within the data looking across our supplier partners, whether it be our produce partners, whether our broadline partners, our smallware suppliers, all of those, even our uh, re and uh, partners out like Dot. But staying on top of your inventory is crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The FISMA 204 is really going to do, you know, the whole industry a good service in terms of getting one, especially our distributors, up to speed with where they need to be in order to provide that visibility just from a sourcing standpoint. Um, you know, increasingly people want to understand where their food is coming from. And of course, in, in supply chain, that's important for us to have a strong pulse too. Um so it is technology is definitely advanced and 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 yeah, that's the more the more that you can use the data, you know, the more valuable I think uh we can all be as we're behind the 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 levers. Um how about just greatest need? So if technology is the greatest advancement, what do you believe would be the greatest need in our industry right now? Um continued growth and collaboration between suppliers, um, distributors and uh, end users such as ourselves. Um, there's a lot of great groups out there like Kinetic 12 and others who are um, are trying to figure out how we bridge the gap between what the customer needs, what the supplier offers, and how we go to market and execute. I think that um, the, the biggest thing for me is having a supplier, before we even engage in ideation and development, understand our business model and what we're trying to achieve. Um, we do um, a supplier discovery process before we even talk to a new supplier. Obviously, you have your basic things like your NDAs and whatnot, but we give a brief synopsis of each brand so that we don't waste their time or ours when we sort of talk about development ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, we also are uh, instituting over this last year, we put in place a new global RFP process. As you can imagine, with as many brands as we have, uh, we did a, a French fry RFP recently that we discovered that we had like eight different kinds of quarter inch fries out oh. across the system. And as we tried to consolidate and marry this volume up, it made it a lot easier for us to go in and talk to the internal stakeholders about why 
this quarter inch fry was better or worse in their mind than this quarter inch fry. But when we went to the RFP, we were able to, to put that out there at, at, at the beginning of the inception of the RSP with the different suppliers that came to market. Um, we're taking that same approach and constantly honing it, but the collaboration that comes out of that and, um, and the supplier sort of giving a cliff notes version, if you will, of each brand really helps in keeping the process efficient. Yeah. I've attended Connect well a couple of times, actually, in that event, I agree, where you can sit in small groups and, and have suppliers and operators and bounce questions off. As a program partner, third party, you know, we manage national clients in terms of procuring produce and the distribution. It's so important for us to not only know what the operators are looking for, but also hear from them specifically, what is it that they drive? You know, how do they define success for their brand this year? Is it cost? Is it just in, in pure growth and, and that kind of becomes our new role in, in supporting them. But then also hearing from other suppliers as far as just challenges and goals with them and the conversations coming out of some of those events are so valuable, not only just for that year, but years to come as you never know when something's going to pop up and you can point back to the conversation that was hot there or a relationship that you've now met as a result of being there. So huge fan of kinetics. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. It humanizes each of our problems. Like some conferences you go to, it's about engagement with the supplier partner more so than the engagement with your peers. Mm -hmm. um, there is so much learning that comes out of hearing others having similar challenges and learning from their approach. So, um, uh, and a lot of times some of our best supplier relationships have come from those who have been a, to events like that or that event to your point where they see and maybe modify how they engage with new partners just to offer those kind of insights. Uh, so I, I think it's really how, especially now, so more than ever with the work from home environment where it's become like my team, I'm the only Denver-based corporate employee for uh, a fab brand. I have uh, members of our team that live in California, that live in Kentucky, that live in Florida, that um, that are all over the country and being able to be in a room together a couple of times a year and talk about the different challenges really normalizes things and helps reset. Yeah, I think we have such an increased um, appreciation for that time too. I and mean, it's, it's highly valuable when we're all back together in person. Um, and I think we've, you know, we don't take that time for granted when we're there. We're very, very in person, very engaged. Um, and we're just appreciative. I think you know, when we're not spending time together every single day, you just really enhance the value of that time when you are together. So this business requires constant decision-making and, and challenge uh, problem-solving and, and challenge navigating. I love your reference to a puzzle as far as the distribution profile for even a specific ingredient from a national standpoint. But again, there's multiple decisions that need to be made day in, day out, especially in your position as a chief supply chain officer. Can you talk about a key principle that exists at your core to drive decision-making that you feel has been really key to your success? Um, so I can tell you how I got to where I am. Um, I, I'm, I was the guy who went to the office every day during COVID. I like being in an office. So the hardest part for me in my transition here fat was working remotely and having a team because you don't get to build that emotional empathy um, that you would by being next to someone every day. So it took me a little while to 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 be able to um, evaluate and trust everyone around me, not trust is probably not the way, but understand each of their strengths and skill sets. So over this last year, I've learned that um, the key to, to really being effective is understanding the motivations of your team members and what they're trying to accomplish, their own goals, and then working towards a agreed upon outcome. 
where we're trying to drive a particular set of results and then trusting that they're, they're capable of doing those things. And I've been very fortunate here to be surrounded by some really talented people. I've got some uh, amazing leaders that are leading each division of our uh, supply chain team. We've, we've broken it up into distribution, into brand, supply chain management, and then to a procurement team that looks for overarching um, synergies across the brands to do global RFP. But it's taken me a while at this role here to sort of step back and let people run with their role. I'm not that I'm a control freak by any means, but you do want to trust and verify these processes. So I think the biggest thing is checking in, making sure they feel supported, making sure they understand that you're there as a resource to them. But more than anything, setting clear defined goals when you start the process. Oh, I love that. That's, I hope a lot of managers who manage from a remote position have, have heard that and their antennas are up. And I encourage them to reach out to you following the show. Because I think that's, that is very wise. I think very challenging to really build that empathy and true understanding of of each team member as you're trying to also manage the business as well. Um, so that's that's great. And I, I'm i so glad that you said that. Do you mind if I ask, I might go off on a tangent here, but you know, so these are domestic and international brands. So you guys are in 20 different countries, 40 different states, I believe, since the last time we checked. Um, you know, when you issue a global RFP, what do you notice is the greatest difference, even just at the ingredient level when you're dealing with, with spaces outside of the US, for example? and how that impacts, you know, the work that you're doing. So it's what's core and what can still be made local. Um, one of the interesting things about owning brands that are um, have a tenure, like some of our brands, like Johnny Rockets, as an example, um, they had core recipes back in the day uh, where they were actually making a lot of those things in-house. So it's deciding what items that you need to bring in from the U.S. manufacturers or that can be made outside the U.S. for those locations or that can still be made from scratch within the location. You know, we're doing a lot of expansion and growth in Puerto Rico and Mexico today with several of the brands. And that's one of the processes to today is to discern the level of complexity it is to obtain the same outcome, if you will, the same experience for the guests. But as far as getting things out of the country, it's partnering with the right companies that can uh, help you export those products in a timely manner and giving the franchisees the resources to partner with those companies. How about specifically for fat brands? What does success look like in the next, I don't know, two to five years? Where is it that, that the brand wants to go? I mean, just already understanding where you're at now. So um, I think continued growth of the existing core brands. Um, we've got such a robust pipeline out there today of growth. Um, over 140 plus locations this year. Forgive me for not having an exact number. And I say that of 23 but even increased growth next year. Um, we have built a really strong support network from the construction and development team. And uh, with uh, the leadership of the last couple of years, also recognizing that you have to follow that up with supply chain and marketing in order to continue to support those markets, especially as you go into emerging markets where you haven't had the same brand awareness that you've had before. But um, I believe if I were to speak for fat brands, the long-term goal is continued growth without sacrificing quality. Uh, for the guests, being able to deliver on the vision of the brand every day, no matter how many locations we have. And, and what is the core value that Fat Brands is grounded in? Um, being able to supply, uh, or supply, let me start over with that. Being able to give the guests a great experience at a great value. Being able to supply the franchisee with a model that allows him to achieve his financial goals and his growth goals with a trusted, proven concept. 
that's why we win and the franchisee operator wins. Okay. Now back from a sourcing perspective, what do you believe it takes to procure the best? Um, you know, we use this term a lot within the organization um, as strategic partners. Uh, and it, those partners that understand that surety of supply, prioritizing our business and our commitment to them as partners um, are, are really crucial. But um, there's a lot of intangibles to that based on the item. Um, you know, you, you talk about a dry good versus a fresh good. Our burgers being fresh is a different set of strategic success criteria for a, for a fresh burger manufacturer than there would be a, a dry RT or a dry storage RTU sauce. But regardless, it's to make sure that they continue to do the quality checks, making sure the product attains and retains its uh, 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 qualitative standards that we use uh, in order to make sure the product delivers on what we uh, tell the guests they're going to get. Um, but also knowing that we have a responsibility to them, um, making sure that we uh, continually engage with them, talk about forecasting, talk about where the business is going, our growth plans, areas of opportunities within the organization to uh, become a bigger part of what we do, making sure we stay uh, aware of what their vision is for their brands and their growth strategy. Wow. Um Let's wrap up with a few questions that kind of get to you on more of a personal level. Without, without your attachment to fat brands, what would you say excites you most about the future of food service and supply chain work? Um, I think continued efficiencies. Um, mm -hmm. Being able to be, and I, and I only say this because uh, I can't think of another way to say it, but to do more with less. Being, um, being able to use uh, Power BI and AI tools to drive out waste in the system. Um, it, it's a, it's a funny business because, um, it, it is not a widget factory restaurants. Uh, you know, you don't have a manufacturing where you can run lean six Sigma on something. You've got the commitment level of the employee in the restaurant to deliver on the guest experience. So I think there's always going to be some huge aspect of the human, uh, personality in it. But I think the continued efficiency, is the thing that I get most excited about, being able to just really become better and better each day. And like I said earlier, being able to drive cost out without affecting supplier partners, um, making uh, supplier changes, which are huge, is huge in the terms of upsets, uh, uh, in terms of business model and operation. But that is probably where I get most excited. They're, they're so different today in terms of what we have access to from a technology and just what we did as few as five, six, seven years ago. I mean, COVID, as we all know, made us all run like crazy to become more efficient and have better line of sight through our products and our distribution models. Yes, and yet COVID also provided just that that commitment and, and understanding of how important that time around the table really is. And, and to your point, technology will never be able to replace that. And in fact, you have to stay so close to that and the pulse of what your, your customers really value about being in there and present. I had Charlie with Brinker on, and that was something that he articulated just so beautifully is you really, there's no replacement for just that time spent around the table. In fact, technology services an interruption to the peace and value that we, we find there at a restaurant with, with a server that's supporting, you know, our experience there as well. So. Absolutely. Char Charlie's very insightful. I, I've always been a, a big fan of Charlie. 
right. So we do some rapid fire at the end. And I'm curious about a daily habit that keeps you grounded. Personally or professionally? Uh, personally. Um, so I like to get up with my wife in the morning. She's a social worker in the school districts here in Jeffco County. And just to make sure that she doesn't get out without seeing her, spending five minutes with her, she leaves at 6.30. She's actually out the door by 6.30 every day. So as you can imagine, that's her getting up at 5.30. But um, the other thing is I do my best when I can, when the weather permits here in Denver, to walk my daughter to school because she uh, is in the K through 8, uh, which is a block from our house, a block and a half from our house. But um, just those little moments where I can stop because when I walk into my office and I shut my door, I try to treat it as if it's my, it's my work, right? It's, it's, and when I walk out that door, I try to put myself back into my, my family. So, so personally, that's the biggest thing is just making sure I still take time to, to be there. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, to you, when we were talking before the call, my wife went to Dallas uh, with my daughter for some time with her family and my son stayed with me. So I tried my best to prioritize time with him, but family time is probably the most uh, and not forgetting why we do all what we do. Um, professionally, it's making sure to stay connected to my team and it's, you know, it, it's hard, especially with things as fast paced, but just check-ins asking what's going on, how they're doing, just remembering that they're more than just a piece of a, of a larger puzzle. They're, they're how we succeed and how we get better every day and, and making sure that they're feeling fulfilled in what they do. Oh, I love those answers. I so I share that working remote. I Once I walk in my office and I shut the door, I am here and in a vortex. And in fact, a crazy story, the Friday before Christmas break, I had my cell phone turned over on my desk because I was in a marathon setup calls. And when I turned it back over between one of the calls, I had like 15 missed calls and text messages, which is number I couldn't find. And my daughter had gotten hit at school um, just from a rock, a boy accidentally threw a rock and it needed stitches. Um, so by that point, my husband, who works 45 minutes away, was already basically at the school. And here I'm like five miles away. Like, Are you kidding me? Like I had it turned over and I was so in the zone. Uh, but I just uh, all that to say we can get definitely in the in the vortex, even working from home in terms of the focus. But to take that time and, and walk your daughter to school or even just be with your wife in, in the brief time you have with her during the day. I love um, those moments and focus on, on presence. So, you know, you touched on something a minute ago. I, I, I looked up in November this last year and was just like, it felt like I was in a vacuum. Um, I've made some really great contacts here in Denver. Um, Debbie with Bagel Brands and, you know, mm. Ross, who used to work with Mitten Noodles, is now at yeah. um, we, we reached out to each other. You know, we need to put a group together of just supply chain professionals and, and, and just get together and have this meeting. So, we're trying to work out something like that now. Just to that, that touch going, right? Just to keep that emotional empathy, that emotional connection going. But it's so crucial because you can get lost. You can almost get a little bit dehumanized, if you will, when you focus on process more than than people. Yeah, gosh, what a what an awesome conversation. You you have some great great insights. I so agree. How about just a strategy or a tool in your workday that saves you the most time? strategies in the work data saved me the most time. Um, you know, like I, I touched on it a minute ago, but checking in with our, our department leads, uh, mm -hmm. just making sure that uh, we're able to get time on the things that may have popped up within their week, uh, any 
any way of, I can be a resource to them or um, we're doing a lot right now around our summit planning for, for that. We're having it this year in April at the win and there's a lot of uh, supplier calls and things like that. But one of the things that keeps me focused most is I think it's just connecting with the people. Um, I, as you can imagine, and I'm sure you're the same way, you could do a lot of Zoom and Teams and WebEx and Google Meet calls uh, going on right now. And uh, the hardest thing for me was not hitting accept all. A lot of the times hitting tentative for 90% of them and attending them based on where my teams, have, our teams have told us the priorities are. So sure. I think just being able to prioritize the day, focusing on people again and being where I'm needed or uh, where I can provide value is, is the biggest thing. Yeah, well, I, I, I used to, and, and I guess somewhat still think that having an agenda for every call is important, especially because, again, our time is so limited in this career. You have to maximize each day and really be selective about which meeting you're joining. I have found on the other, on the other side of that, that some of my most productive meetings are the ones that weren't, weren't agenda focused because they were simply that, just the touch base, because the things that you can really start to groom in terms of trust and relationship building do come from that, not bringing an agenda to a call, just t t checking in. And there's a lot that you can learn from those in-between moments too. Um, and the other thing too is to remember to be, there's everyone in your life can teach you something. I've been so fortunate to work with so many amazing people over the years, whether it be at Noodles or on the border, and, and just take that time to humanize the experience and, and realize that you can learn something from anyone and they can teach you and make you better. So that's another reason to make those times to connect. Absolutely. How about to the next generation of supply chain or procurement interested professionals? What is a secret that you're willing to share as they come into this business? Um, patience. It's taken me years and some would argue that those who know me well, that I still don't have the necessary <laughs> right amount of patience at times. But it's to realize that there's, there's nothing that you can't come from. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we've had, if COVID taught us anything, you take the situation, you assess what happened, you fix it, work towards it, and then go back and do a postmortem on it to make sure it doesn't occur again or you do best. But don't let a single event define you. Uh, don't feel that anything has gotten the best of you as long as you put the best of yourself out there to uh, every day to uh, be prepared because you can't control everything. All you can do is control the things that are within your purvey. So I think that's the biggest thing is, is don't let a single event define you as long as you're doing your best every day. Patience, Dan. How about a mentor for you in the business? Who has been a mentor and in what way? What's that? Man, I, I've been really fortunate to have a lot of fantastic mentors over the years. A lot of leaders, whether it be the C-suite level or just peers in the industry. But I, I think if I go back, the most gentleman named uh, Ken Seidharth, who uh, just invested in me years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, ten, Ken brought me a lot of books and I'm going to age myself or date myself by saying this, but things like The One Minute Manager. Oh, yeah. Eight, who Moved My Cheese. Um, still all real anchored in my management philosophy. Um, and he just reminded me sometimes to take a deep breath. Um, we did a lot with profiles and values back in the day at brands that he and I worked at. And um, I can tend to, to, to pop, if you will, sometimes when bad things happen. And he's, he's really, uh, over the years, has sort of taught me to take a deep breath, you know, assess what's going on. You know, you, you can't change the past. All you can do is change how you react to it in the future. So I, I think more than anything, uh, Ken, uh, being an operations lead with a lot of experience, just taught me that um, your tone and, and energy matter. 
So yeah. make sure that you present yourself in the best light to those around you because it's it it can be transferred to you, right? Negative energy or or angst or anxiety can be transferred to somebody else, and you can um, uh, accidentally change the dynamic of what's going on and how you react to things. Yeah, your tone and energy matter absolutely. All right, last question: Pick or kick your staple produce item for a burger. Staple produce item. Um. You're going to laugh at this, but I think fresh lettuce, green, bright, beautiful, fresh lettuce on a burger. I think it just adds that different color. Like tomatoes, you lose them in the ketchup if the ketchup's on there. Onions, <laughs> lost in time, but I think fresh lettuce matters most. I love the crunch. Yep. Okay. So for those that um, heard something that they want to maybe inquire more about or just get in touch with you, perhaps they live in Colorado, want to join that small group. Where can people get a hold of you? Are you on LinkedIn? Yes. Uh, no, you're on LinkedIn. Actually, you have great presence on there. So if you don't follow Jeff on LinkedIn, follow him. He's got great, great shares. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, LinkedIn absolutely is probably the best way. Um, I really love LinkedIn. It, it's, it's well, 90% of it is the, um, just positivity and growth and people development uh, and getting out there and seeing what's going on and what people are proud of, which is, is I think, something that you miss on other personal social platforms a lot of times. So I've enjoyed LinkedIn quite a bit. Yeah, that's an, that's an awesome space. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Well, thank you for having me. I really, like I said, I'm honored that you considered me for um, this conversation and I appreciate it. And if there's anything else I can do in the future, please let me know. I sure will. And to our audience today, if you learned something or laughed, please tell someone and share this episode. Thank you again, Jeff Bruce. With Fat Brands, you are such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Lauren. And that wraps up another episode. We have covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining. For show notes and our most updated market report, visit us at groundedthepod.com. Grounded is powered by the Buyer's Edge Produce Division. Our mission is to provide innovative solutions and excellent service to food service operators by leveraging technology, talent, and an insatiable appetite to improve. 